Hi there, and welcome to another episode of the Future of Jewish podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Hoffman. On this episode, I am joined by Dana Levitin-Steiner and Dr. Laura Shaw-Frank. Dana is Director of Access Global at American Jewish Committee, where she oversees an international program to engage young professionals through transformative leadership development, hands-on advocacy, and philanthropy. And Laura serves as AJC's Director of William Pensick Contemporary Jewish Life. Enjoy my conversation with Dana Levinson-Steiner and Dr. Laura Shaw-Frank. Laura and Dana, thank you so much for doing this. This is the first trifecta on the Future of Jewish podcast, so I'm excited for this one especially. And why don't we start uh, first, I guess we'll, we'll start with Laura. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your background, where you're from, everything that got you where you are today? Sure. So thanks for having us. We're really excited to be with you today. Um, so I grew up in New Jersey, the daughter of uh, an immigrant refugee and um, and a first generation American, um, very passionately Jewish family. Uh, actually always thought I was going to make Aliyah. And my husband and I actually moved to Israel um, in the year 2000 for two years. My husband had a fellowship there. We ended up coming back because my father the immigrant refugee, um, unfortunately was diagnosed with brain cancer and he passed away uh, shortly after we came back from Israel, but we, we returned because of that. Um, I had been an attorney before that. I, I trained as an attorney um, and I practiced as an attorney for a while, about 10 years. And um, when we came back to America, I realized that if I wasn't gonna be in Israel, I needed to feed my soul through work. And I became a Jewish educator. And uh, as I became a Jewish educator, I fell in love with Jewish history and went and got a PhD in Jewish history. Um, and um, as I was finishing my PhD in Jewish history, I decided that I wanted to have a more national role. I had been teaching in day schools and loved it, loved it. And working at Yeshivat Maharat, the women's rabbinical school in here in Riverdale, loved that as well. I really wanted to take a more national role where I could do teaching and advocacy at the same time and work on Israel diaspora relations and um, be involved not only in uh, in, in the work of, of education, but also in the work of um, moving things forward programmatically. And so I started working at AJC um, in January 2020, which was an interesting time to start a new job, let me tell you. Um, eight weeks in the office, and then we went home. Very cool. So a lot of stuff to unpack there. I made some notes, but I want to go over to Dana for a second. And Dana, why don't you introduce yourself as well? Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much for having us. Um, it's funny because Laura and I work so closely together, and as she was talking, I was like, oh my God, me too. I can relate to all of these experiences, except that I, I do not have an immigrant refugee father. My dad's from Long Island. So maybe he thinks he's a, a refugee coming from Long Island to New Jersey, but needless to say. Um, so I came from like a fairly typical American secular-ish Jewish family in New Jersey. Um, but we always had a really strong sense of Jewish identity. Uh, I think growing up, I didn't realize that my mom's job was not to work for the Jewish Federation. She actually is a really successful early intervention practitioner, but because she was so involved in the community, I thought that's what she did. I think I thought she went to meetings. I think that's what I thought her job was. But that whole experience really informed who I would ultimately become as an adult. And while I was definitely the kid in Hebrew school who was always getting kicked out of the classroom. So I think that any, you know, clergy person in my life is probably shocked that I became a Jewish educator and a Jewish communal professional. 
it was through getting involved with USY, United Synagogue Youth, as a teen that completely changed my life. I found my people, and it was through USY that I got involved with Camp Ramah. And Camp Ramah was where I really got to spend time with Israelis. And that totally rocked my world. Talk about meeting your people. I met Israelis and I was like, oh my God, we're the same. Like, I love you. I love your sense of total vulnerability and awesomeness and stubbornness and just like chutzpah And I love it so much. And it was really through camp that I got to find my soul and find who I was as a person So not long after graduating from college, I became a Jewish communal professional, but really as a classroom teacher, I worked at a Jewish boarding school, which uh, sadly does not exist anymore, called the American Hebrew Academy in Greensboro, North Carolina. And after that, I moved to New York to get a master's in Jewish experiential education, which in 2011 was like a very hot thing to do. And I think what really inspired me about that experience was understanding how Jewish experience and Jewish education could be so many things. It could be outdoor education. It could be museum education. It could be Israel education. It didn't have to be confined to the four walls of a classroom. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but it really inspired me to think bigger about what I could do and what I could contribute to the Jewish community. So for a long time, I worked for the Ramah Camping Movement in alumni uh, engagement. And then I pivoted to Hillel, where I worked at the Bronfman Center for Jewish Student Life at NYU for three years. And it was truly one of the most holy and remarkable experiences. And while I was there, I was approached to work at AJC. And I definitely had a little imposter syndrome at first saying like, I'm an educator. I talk about Torah and feelings and Israel and Hagim. Like, how am I going to pivot to this very different space. And it turns out that all of the things that I love about Jewish communal education actually translate beautifully into working in advocacy. Like Laura, I also am getting my PhD. I actually just submitted my doctoral dissertation on Sunday night. So I am done and free, which is incredible. (laughs) But you know, whatever. So I will soon be in the company of Laura. But I think the biggest thing for me has always been, at least for the 12 years that I've been working in the Jewish community has always been a question of how do we center relationships at the core of what we do? And I think that in many ways, this survey that Laura and I conducted about the relationship between American Jewish millennials and Israeli Jewish millennials zeroes in on that relationship. And ultimately that has what has inspired me in this work over the last 12, 13 years. So Dan, I'm glad you brought up this this survey that you that you and American Jewish Committee have done. I just want to uh, hit on a few points before we dive into it, because actually I read an article that Dana you wrote in the Times of Israel, which prompted me to reach out to you. Then you brought in Laura, and uh, now we're doing this this podcast episode. But yes. you surveyed something like 1,800 American and Israeli millennial Jews, mm-hmm. uh, and you found that about 50 percent, a little bit more of U.S. Jews, this is ages 25 to 40, they do feel connected to Israel. Mm -hmm. So that's the good side of the coin. The bad side is that 50 percent don't feel connected to Israel. Uh, And then the ones that do not feel, you found that there were essentially two camps, from my understanding. One is that uh, those who have disengaged with Israel, so to speak, over, I guess, disagreements or quarrels with Israeli policies, Mm-hmm. And the second of those camps is those who sort of feel some sort of social pressure 
um, driven by different types of anti-Semitism, blatant, casual. And um, they that effectively wrote that um, this is fueling the anti-Israel sentiments among their peers. Um, so a lot to unpack. I, I guess my, my question is like, like where do we go from here because to me it feels very <laughs> it just feels very weird that um like people would say that they feel disengaged from a country that they are supposed to have some kind of a connection to over policies i mean the supreme court in the united states is about to overturn it seems roe versus wade so does that mean all the people that disagree with that potential decision are going to quote unquote disengage from america like that's where I don't really understand. I mean, if anything, I feel that the, when you don't agree with somebody or some something, that the strategy is to actually engage, to ask why, you know, where are you coming from? What, what is, uh, you know, what's fueling uh, these policies? What's fueling, um, you know, what's, what's the whole story? Not what's the, you know, 30 second video that I saw on Instagram or the two minute clip that I saw on Vice like to, to disengage to me just feels very wrong and bizarre. And so I'm just curious from, from, you know, we'll start with you, Dan, and then move over to Laura. Like, what are the takeaways? What, what are some of the things that you're seeing and feeling on the ground? It's a great question. And if we had all the time in the world, I'm not even sure we'd be able to put a dent in it. But what I will say is, is this. I think for the American Jewish community that is feeling this sense of disconnectedness, either because of policy, because of what they see as, you know, uh, perhaps a rightward leaning of Israeli policy, what they perhaps see as a stalemate between Israel and Palestinians, whatever they see, or they find some certain level of offense with what is, has, has been happening, you know, at the policy level. I think the reality is that for many American Jews, they don't live in Israel. So it's so much easier to disengage. It's like, this isn't my problem. I'm annoyed, I'm pissed off, this doesn't speak to me. So the easiest thing to do is say, I'm out. Like, I'm, I'm finished. Whereas as American Jews, these policies that happen within our community affect us, whether it's reproductive rights, whether it's any number of other issues that may immediately have an impact on their day-to-day -day life. You know, those are things they can't necessarily disengage from. So I think that on some levels, it's so easy for American Jews to opt out of the experience of connecting to Israel or advocating for Israel because they can put it out of sight and out of mind. It doesn't need to be a part of their day-to-day -day life. I think something that has emerged in our findings is that for many Jews who, by the way, may not have Israel at the center of their lives, Israel is becoming more of a part of their lives because of the way in which the interchangeability of being Jewish and individuals placing blame on Jews for what Israel does is having an impact on the day-to-day -day life of American Jews. I think that is a very real experience and our survey certainly indicated that. We see there are synagogues that are defaced with uh, you know, vandalism 
that have nothing to do with Jewish life or Jewish experience. And, you know, the equation of placing blame on American Jews for what Israel's democratically elected government chooses to do is just pure and simple anti-Semitism. And in that way, we see that the day-to-day -day actions of what happens in Israel actually are having an impact on American Jews, whether they opt out or not. And I think that that is a really interesting challenge and also an opportunity, I think, in terms of engaging in conversations with our Israeli counterparts about what we, what we do in that particular situation. So, you know, that's a particularly interesting observation that we learned from our survey results. I want to talk about sort of the relationship between Israel and American Jews in a second, but I want to go over to Laura and I want to talk to you specifically, Laura, about the anti-Semitic uh, anti aspect of, of sort of these findings that American Jewish community uh, has, has come up with based on the survey. Uh, Laura, in your estimation, I mean, I know you shared with me a few minutes before we went on air here that you have some, you know, uh, actually a lot of experience and what works to quote unquote fight anti-Semitism and what doesn't. In your estimation, Lord, is this a situation where uh, anti-Semitism is feeling sort of this, this wedge in the center of, of those who do and don't support Israel in the United States among millennials? Or do you feel that it's not really connected to anti-Semitism and that anti-Semitism is just sort of enlivening it, if you will? I think the answer is both. It's a really good question. So I wanted to add to what Dana was saying before. Um, I think that it's important to understand that what we found in our study kind of is something that we kind of knew before, which is there are Jews who are very committed to Israel, who are troubled by Israel. And I, you may have heard of Danielle Hartman from the Hartman Institute who calls those Jews the troubled committed, right? So we, we found those Jews who evince enormous attachment to Israel and at the same time are troubled by um, some of the actions of the Israeli government. So we have that group. And then we also have the troubled uncommitted those who lack attachment to Israel and who are also troubled by the Israeli government's policies, whether they lack attachment to Israel because they weren't immersed in a Jewish community growing up, maybe they have Jewish parents, but they didn't get a good Jewish education, they weren't uh, part of a Jewish community, they sort of lack the touch points that give people connection to Jewish life. Um, and then, of course, there the, are the untroubled, uncommitted, who are opted out, and Dana kind of spoke about those people a little bit, the people that don't really care about Israel and don't really aren't really troubled by the actions of the Israeli government because they're just disconnected entirely. And the American Jewish community is a really complicated place um, in all of these ways. So I think that anti the role that anti-Semitism plays is is complicated. I think that you know I'll speak as a mother of uh, college age, graduate school age, and high school kids. Um, it is deeply, deeply affecting to my children who do feel deep attachment to Israel. My mother's twin sister made Aliyah 50 something years ago, and we have lots of cousins in Israel to whom we're very attached. My kids have been many times. One of my kids is there now for two years, a uh, gap year program, and he was actually born in Jerusalem. Um, so we have a deep attachment to Israel, and I see my kids are so anxious. In fact, I'll just tell you this, it just happened this morning. My son, who's in 11th grade at, at the Heschel School, which is a Jewish day school here in Manhattan, he came downstairs this morning and he said, Ima, I had the most awful dream last night. And I said, what? And he said, I dreamt that um, 
that I was being attacked by um, by anti-Israel activists and they were throwing things at us and I was so scared. And I was like, oh my God, like this has actually gone into my child's dreams. Um, so I think that the anti-Semitism is impacting those who are deeply committed to Israel and making them anxious and scared and nervous, and perhaps nervous in ways like not displaying who they are as Jews in the public arena, perhaps second guessing or third guessing what they post on social media, perhaps second or third guessing the kind of communities they want to affiliate with. Um, particularly, I would say for progressive Jews, worrying about the progressive spaces that they're going to be in. So I think there's that ilk. And I also think there's probably a group of Jews who are less committed to Jewishly, less committed to Israel, who are just want to wash their hands of the entire thing because it's just too hard and too complicated. And they don't want to get involved or they don't know anything at all. And what they're seeing in the public sphere is that Israel is, you know, the most evil empire in the entire history of the world, which is ridiculous, of course, but that's what they're seeing. And so they're, you know, they they just opt out entirely as well. So I think it's a really, the anti-Semitism is a very, very complicated picture. Definitely. Uh, I want to come back to you, Dana, because I have a very hard time understanding um, how a certain country's policies, um, specific policies, are. we're not talking about like widespread you know, 100% of Israeli policies, we're talking about a few policies here and there that people don't agree with, how that can affect an entire relationship that you have with a country or, or lack thereof. Um, you know, I, I, I guess maybe it's, it's a lack of exposure, lack of knowledge, lack of um, different levels of engagement. And I think you, you sort of specialize in engaging with young professionals, these sort of millennials. Like, why, why is, uh, you know, things like the settlements or uh, certain aspects of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, uh, among other issues, why are these things, in my opinion, blown out of proportion and therefore uh, sort of uh, washed with the entire relationship that you think young Jews around the world, especially in America, have with the state of Israel? So I think it's interesting. I think the people who were never engaged will that we'll remove them. We'll, we'll talk more about the, the troubled committed because I actually think that is um, an important demographic to, to speak about. And I'll say this, I grew up, I'm 34 and a half, and I grew up in a time in which there was a very classic Zionist paradigm of Jewish education. Like it was pretty straightforward in that, you know, Israel, was a miracle, which it is, but you know, Israel was a miracle. We are sort of us and theming the situation with either Palestinians or any of Israel's neighbors. Um, and it was a relatively rosy colored experience of Israeli history. I don't need to tell you, you know, that did not bode well for a number of people in my age group who frankly feel betrayed they feel lied to, they feel betrayed, that the nuances of what is going on in Israeli society, both internally within Israeli society, because let's be honest, Israeli society, Israeli government is not perfect, um, but also what is happening vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians, um, other minorities within Israeli society, there is a sense of betrayal. And that sense of betrayal is- By so who though? Who's betraying them? Just so I'm clear. So I think the 
institutions that raise them, right? Like for a lot of people, the most formative experiences of their lives that made them Jews, school, summer camp, youth movements, gap year programs, all these different experiences that, you know, for the most part, follow a relatively similar formula. Um, in the sense of creating that sense of connection to Israel, there was also a real um, formulaic Hasbara that really existed in like the early aughts and really carried on through most of the early to, to mid 2000, 2010s. And a lot of people in the American Jewish community point to Tsuketan, the war of 2014, as being a, a watershed moment in this relationship between young American Jews and their feelings to Israel. And that can best be sort of broken down by the fact that it was one of the first social media wars. Like the second Lebanon war was 2006. People didn't have smartphones. It was a very different experience. Really 2014 was the social media war. And also the outsized casualties on the Palestinian side pre presented numbers of Jews in the American Jewish community who value social justice as a, a real tragedy. And it was, it absolutely was. And also created a sense of uh, challenge about how American Jews felt the outsized casualty was disproportionate to not Israeli loss, but just the loss of Palestinian lives. And that presented a challenge for those who place, you know, certain values at their core. I think also there was a sense that there was not enough education on their own part about what precipitated some of these engagements, what precipitates or what the experience is for Palestinians living in Gaza and the West Bank, et cetera, et cetera. And once that began to unravel, it created a real movement around feeling this sense of betrayal from the institutions that raised them, from the institutions that had a responsibility to educate them about Israel, both in its modern and historic context. And that in and of itself created a really challenging paradigm for American Jews to say, if I can't trust the institutions that educate me, I have to do it myself. And in right. doing so, like I have to be the bearer of truth. And in some level that truth rejects what I know, it rejects what I experienced. And it doesn't necessarily call in institutions. I would say in some cases there have been some activists who have really tried to call in the institutions that they were involved with and say like, hey, like, can we work together? Can we co-create a curriculum? Can we reimagine or re-envision what this looks like so future generations of young Jews can have a fuller picture. Um, and ultimately, there were a number of institutions who immediately declined and were like, this is not what we do. And that did not create a great sense of, um, of compatibility between this new generation of American Jews who were like, summer camps, you need to provide a different lens or a different context of engagement in understanding Israel and the complexities of Israeli society of geopolitics. And there were other institutions who said, okay, like let's think about what this looks like and how we can move the needle and move things forward. And so I think to your, your question about how can there be people who say like, okay, well, you know, this policy 
is going to be it for me. It's going to be the reason why I disengage with Israel. I actually think it's part and parcel of a larger issue, which is this sense of a, you know, betrayal being lied to that Jewish institutions can't be trusted. So therefore any relationship that I know or anything I know is inaccurate. So that's number one. Number two is this sense that if justice means something, then I can't compartmentalize certain justices that I fight for here in the States. Yeah, but yeah, I'm sorry that, that I mean, I, I, the, the, I would say loud and clear as, as an American myself, that, you know, justice, there's not one definition for justice in the world. Okay. Different cultures have different definitions. Okay. The U.S. has a certain definition of justice which might be in line with us, other so-called so, so Western countries. And uh, for example, Middle Eastern states uh, have different definitions of justice, as does China, as does Venezuela, as does North Korea, as does Brazil, so on and so forth. Americans, and, and I'll be loud and clear, get one thing wrong. The world doesn't work according to America. Let me, you know, that's one thing I learned when I moved to Israel. So you're sort of, you know, view of justice, while it's nice in the United States, for example, I think is completely misguided when you apply it to, in this case, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And doesn't mean, by the way, that American justice is better or worse than other versions of justice. It's one version of justice, and there's many versions in the world of justice. I think that's, to, to me, I read something recently that says, you know, the problem that people have with Israel is not what Israel does, it's what Israel is. And Israel is not the same level of de democracy as the United States. And yet when we judge it according to that, of course, it's going to fall short. But if you realize, no, no, Israel is a Jewish democracy, not a democratic Jewish state. I think there's a, there's a clear nuance there. Uh, then all of a sudden, and then, then you have to learn about what, what, what is it? What is a Jewish state? Like, what is it? What is that? You know, what does that mean? What is the history of that? What is the precedent for that? Uh, what is the history of the Jewish people in general, which I think most of these people that we're talking about don't have any clue, including my former self, about the, the history of the Jewish people. Um, and I think that's where it becomes like you're judging, you're, you're judging a football player on basketball. And to me, it's just very misguided. I, I think yeah. it's interesting. Sorry, Laura, I'll just add one quick frame and I really want to turn it over to you because <laughs> then you have a lot of good things to say, which is that, you know, the current status of social justice movements is to apply lenses and the lens that currently is being applied in the states applies is being applied in contexts where it doesn't quite fit and i think that there is an example this is an example of that um where there are obviously more nuances and complexities than there is to just saying okay well from what i believe and i'm quoting um oren jacobson um and his team from project shema who, who sort of talk about these um these like three pillars where if, if you know, the issue of, of justice is seen as like white supremacy, uh, the patriarchy and colonialism, if from somebody from the outside is looking in, you know, and says like, okay, well, from what I'm seeing in Israel, it looks like it's run by like white men who are, you know, taking over from like indigenous folks who look brown, then like that is the lens that they are looking through. And regardless of how we try to unpack that scenario and be like, well, actually, I don't know if you know this, but like more than 50% of Israelis identify as Jews of color, you know, all of that stuff, you're already lost because, you know, optics 
and the lenses that are applied in terms of justice are immediately at the gate, like create that barrier to entry. The other thing I'll also just say, frankly, is that like, yeah, there are challenges within, within Israel. Like there are definite issues within the way in which Palestinians and Israelis engage. There are definitely issues of religious equality. There are a lot of issues that exist within Israeli society, but that doesn't make me not a Zionist. It makes me say like, okay, like what do we do and how do exactly. we engage in this particular issue? But going back to the original point, like if we're talking about lenses, this particular lens is one that it's blurry. It's like when you're at the doctor and they're like one or two and you put over the lens, like when you put on the lens of that particular frame of social justice, my opinion is that it's always going to be blurry when you apply it to the Israel lens. But for other people, they might say, no, it's extremely clear to me. This is how it works. And this is how I'm going to engage. So Laura, I, I definitely think... want to turn it to you because you're, you're so you're yeah, I'd love to, to speak about this. <laughs> yeah, for go, sure. Go for Laura. So I, I want to say a couple things. First of all, the I was the Israel educator who came in right as Dana's generation was um, already out of school and was faced with sort of changing the way that we educated about Israel, which we did. Um, and I think it has actually made a big difference to be able to do exactly as you were saying, Josh, talk about what does it mean to have a Jewish democracy? What does it mean to combine Judaism and a democratic state? Um, in what ways can we kind of get out of our American boxes and think about Israel as a different kind of place? And in what ways can we understand Israel to be complicated? to maybe have things about it that we don't like, just the way America has things about it that we don't like, and yet remain loyal and connected. And I think that the organized Jewish community, particularly I would say in the day school world, has done a good job in many, many day schools, not all, but in many day schools, has done a good job of complicating that Israel education and, and making a new world of Israel education that is much more successful in maintaining connection in the face of challenges. Having said that, I just want to say that the majority, the vast majority of the American Jewish community does not go to day school. They maybe go to Hebrew school through eighth grade. How much Israel education are those kids getting? Not a lot. And their parents who grew up perhaps in the aftermath of 67 and understood what it meant to worry about Israel, to worry that Israel might not survive, who themselves were children of survivors or people who at least lived through the period of the Holocaust and understood what it meant for Jews to be in danger, that stuff doesn't transmit automatically. It's not like a DNA. And we see this all the time with our lay leaders who are so passionate about Israel, our older lay leaders I'm talking about, who are so passionate about Israel and will do anything for Israel to fight for Israel, to advocate for Israel, and their kids are not interested. Not that they're anti, they just don't care. Why don't they care? Well, why should they care? Those ideas that the life experiences of their parents do not translate to these kids. And frankly, if you go to Hebrew school through your bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah, you're not learning very much about Israel. You're learning how to decode Hebrew, not how to understand it, you're learning how to maybe, you know, get through your Torah reading, and then you're exiting stage right before high school. So, you know, a lot of this is on, I think, on the, the American Jewish community and frankly, on American families, Jewish families, for not emphasizing their values. And I just want to say one more thing, which is in terms of 
what we were saying about that there are that what Dana say, was saying about the fact that there actually really are problems in Israel, as there are in every country. American Jews also, those who do feel connection, and even those whose connection is a little tangential, they want to feel like they have a say. They want to feel like they have some stake, that Israelis see them as having some stake in Israel as the land of the Jewish people. And that's actually something that we found in our survey, that American Jews are much more likely to say that they want a say in what Israel does and what Israel's policies are. And Israelis, of course, are like, no, you can't have a say. Well, You're I mean, American. So, so let's talk about that for a second. I mean, there's a few things there that I want to hit on. Uh, I made some notes. The, the first thing is that uh, you can have a say in Israel if you want. It's called making Aliyah, which any Jew in the world can do. And coming and living in Israel and getting your citizenship, guaranteed. This isn't like a seven-year process like it is in the States or in other places in the world where it's you know definitely not for sure and whatever. So I think... Most, I think a lot of Jews don't realize that that if they want to have a say, they can actually come and 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 move to Israel and have a say. That's number one. Number they two, do, I they just don't want to. <laughs> yeah, American Jews but, are not no, going to make Aliyah. It's not happening. No, not I'm happening. Not, and I'm not and I'm not advocating for Aliyah. What I'm just saying though is that like, if if you live in uh, you know Sri Lanka and you're like, I want to have a say in American politics. Okay, like that's never going to happen. But uh, you know, the other thing too is that. You know, having a say is not a right, it's a privilege. And just like uh, voting in any country, I think, is a privilege. It's something that it, there's, it's a two-way street. The, the country has to, you know, create uh, opportunities for people to have a say in their government. But the citizens have to uh, be educated enough to have what I think we would all agree is, is a reasonable say. And my, my biggest issue is the lack of education, which seems to be the, the common word that's coming up in this conversation, is that most Jews around the world do not have and do not do not take on the responsibility of educating themselves, not just about Israel, but about what it means to be a Jew in general. And I, I agree that the institutions have either dropped the ball or for whatever reason, not done a good enough job there. But in today's day and age in 2002, 20 and moving forward, I mean, there's something called the internet, which we all have access to, and there's tons of great content, main, mainly free, that you can go and you can educate yourself, whether it's through movies and TV shows, whether it's through Wikipedia, whether it's through YouTube, et cetera. And to me, like, I, I just find it bizarre that we're saying on one hand, they, they, they want, they, you want to have a say, which I think Jews around the world should have a say in Israel. I had talked about that with uh, Tavika Klein in an earlier episode. But on the other hand, like, you know, there's a responsibility that comes with that. And how do we sort of find that middle ground in your estimation? So I, I, I think you're, you're right. There is some kind of a middle ground there. But I'll tell you about getting education. You can't, I don't think that we can expect kids who grew up in relatively assimilated American Jewish homes to even know that they want an education at which I mean it's it's on parents it's on institutions it's on all of us to make sure that this education happens. But sometimes we're at a point with young generations that they're so distanced that I don't even know if it would to use a Hebrew phrase for them to think about getting an education or looking for something. Um, I also I, I want to just say that. For those Jews who are growing up in liberal movements of Judaism, 
it feels to them like Israel can't have it both ways. They can't say they're the homeland of the Jewish people and speak as in the language of homeland of the Jewish people and then exclude the type of Jews that they are. And I think that there's a major disconnect there. I think that American Jews who grow up in liberal movements, who are the ones who are generally the ones getting less education, right? They're, they look at Israel and they see that Israel doesn't um, doesn't allow for, or certainly excludes in many of its policies, Jews like them who practice conservative reform, uh, reconstructionist Judaism. And that just contributes to this feeling of deep and powerful alienation. Like, don't say you're the homeland of the Jewish people and then tell me I can't have a mixed davening at the Kotel. And, you know, I know that Israelis are like, why do you care about the Kotel? Like, not, not that it's not important, but like, it's doesn't, I know the disconnect. It's a symbol. It's a symbol. For, for American Jews, it's a symbol. And also the whole conversion issue is a huge um, symbol. Um, the fact that you can be Jewish under the law of return, but not Jewish enough to get married in the state of Israel that rankles a lot for American Jews. And interestingly, I think that we found, Dana, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, in our survey that the policy that American Jews most wanted to weigh in on with respect to Israel were religious policies. Yeah. So, but this is what I want to, this is what I don't understand. If you're so concerned about the policies of Israel, then come and become a citizen and vote. If you're so concerned. Now, I'm not but, saying but that doesn't work because yeah. I, I mean the reason that doesn't work is because if Israel is saying it's the homeland for the Jewish people, right? Then, then it's and, the and homeland it's for like, the Jewish and, people, and, right. and and Israeli leaders say those kinds of things all the time. Right. And I also wanted to say one other thing, which is we in our survey we asked whether Jews in Israel and in the diaspora think that diaspora Judaism is important, the diaspora Jewish community, the health of the diaspora Jewish community is important. And overwhelmingly, in incredibly high percentages, I don't know if you can pull them up, Dana, I can pull them up in a second. It's like, it's they, like 80 and 90, per, it's, it's, it's enormous, it's a huge percentage. Said that the diaspora Jewish community is critical for the survival of the Jewish people. And I firmly believe that as well. By the way, both sides also said in incredibly high numbers that the survivor of survival of Israel is critical to the survival of the Jewish people. I think that we have an understanding that the Jewish people is not, we're not all moving to Israel and that the diaspora can do wonderful things for Israel and be supportive to Israel and also just be a different version of the Jewish future that can help us bring the most vibrant Jewish future that we can. Um, so I, I, don't, I don't think the solution is saying that American Jews should make Aliyah. No, that's not what I'm saying. I, I, I want to be clear. First of all, I don't like the idea of saying Jewish homeland. I want to be, I think we should call it the Jewish capital, meaning there's like every country in the world, there's a capital and there's life in the capital, life outside the capital. That's the way that I personally look at Israel. It's the Jewish capital. Not everyone has to live in the Jewish capital. Um, but in, in this case, I, I just find it hard to, like, is there any other country in the world where you can not be a citizen of that country and have an, a say in their policy? Like, well, Help me understand that thing too, right? Like if we say we're all part of the same mishpacha, we're all part of Klal Yisrael, then that's an invitation and not necessarily an invitation to make Aliyah, but it's an invitation. Like, for example, we look at things like the World Zionist Congress, right? We have the World Zionist Congress of which we have all of these different um parties that get to weigh in on issues not only concerning Israel, but concerning the diaspora. So you have thousands of Jews from around the world who come to the World Zionist Congress and they weigh in on all these different things. You have all these different slates, like 
that in and of itself sets a precedent that Jews around the world get to decide what happens in Israel, because that's quite literally what the World Zionist Congress is. And the World Zionist Congress receives funding from the Jewish agency and other government entities in Israel. So that invites Jews from the United States and elsewhere to be like, absolutely, I have a say of what happens in Israel. You're inviting me into that conversation. So it's very complicated if the messaging is like, okay, like you need to help weigh in on issues concerning religious identity, concerning whether X, Y, and Z things should be happening. And also don't weigh in on my policies unless you move here. I think the other piece that's also really challenging is that ultimately at the end of the day, the American government is providing tremendous amount of financial dollars investing in Israel, taxpayer dollars, whether it's for security or other things. So American Jews very likely might say like, yeah, I very much have a say in what happens in Israel. My taxpayer dollars are going to replenish funding for Iron Dome, which is necessary. There is no question that that is a necessary entity. But in our survey, we asked whether um, Israeli Jews believe that Americans should be consulted on issues of American policy. And obviously, you know, they actually said yes to an extent, but the number was obviously higher. I think it was like 56% of, of Americans said, yes, absolutely. Israelis were a little bit lower, but there is, I think, an understanding that there is a sense of reciprocity, although I think our survey indicated that there was more of a desire for Americans to feel that they were, quote unquote, getting more from Israelis, that there is a sense that the relationship has often relied on Israel taking and Americans giving. And there is a sense that Americans would like more of that sense of giving from the Israeli community, not necessarily financially, but in other ways to be determined. We didn't get so into the, into the weeds on like what that give and take would necessarily look like. It's an important I want to I want to go to the point and Laura, I'll come back to you. You know, you talked about sort of institutions dropping the ball on education, engagement, etc. And I'm just curious, uh, you know, from the lens of the American Jewish community, you know, what what you guys are doing specifically to sort of uh, change the way that you guys are trying to educate or engage uh, so forth your audiences because I'll be very uh, frank when I say that a lot of organizations that I speak to, whether on the podcast or in pri private conversations, they talk about wanting to be different, but then they end up doing the same thing that they've been doing for in many cases, decades. So Laura, in your estimation, is, is AJC doing something different or if so, what's different or what are the hopes, what are the objectives that maybe you're trying to change uh, as we sort of, you know, go through these different waters? Okay, great. Yeah, that's a great question. So the first thing I want to say is I don't want to put all the blame on American Jewish institutions. I think American Jewish institutions are actually doing a really great job, but you have to get people in the door in order to get the great job to happen, right? Like, you know, getting people in the door in a multicultural society where so many things are competing for young people's attention and they're not getting that sense of commitment in their homes, many of them, it is a, a, a losing battle um, in, in, in so many profound ways. And there are some organizations that are doing a better job at getting them in the door than others. Um, but I, I just wanna make that clear that I, I don't 
this is not some uh, something that I would blame the American Jewish institutional community for. Um, I think it's it's a shared shared problem. Um, what is AJC doing differently? There's a few things we're doing differently. The first thing is data. Um, one of the reasons we wanted this study is because we believe in data-driven programming and data-driven initiatives. Um, not only did we do this millennial study, but last summer, I, my department did a study on the level of Israel literacy and Israel ed education in the American Jewish community and the level of diaspora literacy and diaspora education in the Israeli Jewish community. And we found a lot of really interesting things and we dispensed and talked about those findings widely. Um, I think that that's really important. We have to actually like, you know, know what we're talking about in a data-driven way and actually act upon data, not upon impressionistic, um, you know, notions of what's going on. So that's first of all. Second of all, um, look, AJC is not going to solve the Jewish education issue in America because we're not, we're not an, we're an advocacy organization, but <clears throat> I do think that there are some, a number of things that we're doing really beautifully. One thing that we're doing really beautifully is we have a teen program called Lift Leaders for Tomorrow that meets seven times for three hours on Sundays. So it's not so onerous that we're not gonna get kids in the door. It's something that you know kids could say looks good on a college application. So they have some incentive to come. And once they're in that door, the education that they are getting about not only history and um, kind of what Israeli society looks like today, but the education they're getting about what it means to explore their own Jewish identities, what it means to tell their Jewish story, and what it means to advocate, not just to know, but to advocate, I think those things are really, really important. Um, we also recently, we, we wanna hear, we wanna like elevate young voices, and I'm gonna let Dana talk more about this um, because that's really her department, but taking young voices and centering them in the conversation is critically important. So um, we just recently had an incubator on disrupting anti-Semitism, and we called it Disrupt Anti-Semitism. We got applications from, from I don't even know, Dana, you might know how many groups we got. It was a lot. It was, a lot. it was like well over 100, well over 100. Yeah, and we chose a few to invest in. Um, who had creative solutions and innovative solutions to fighting anti-Semitism. And they're, these are young Jews who are energized and have fresh takes on things and fresh looks. I think elevating those young voices and centering young voices is really important. And Dana, I think you should just talk about access in general because- uh, Well, I love you. <laughs> I mean, yeah, so access everything, you know, retweet everything Laura just said, um, but access is the young professional division of AJC and we do incredible work not to toot our own horn, but we do. I think one of the things that also really distinguishes access is that we have a very robust access Israel group and they're not Olim, like there's a few, but it's really mostly like Sabras, which I think is really powerful that says, okay, these are Israelis who are concerned about issues of global Jewry. Um, they want to be a part of the solution instead of just, you know, like poo-pooing from afar. Um, and they do really incredible things with us. And, you know, I think the thing that's most powerful that AJC is doing slash did is that you know, we're the only people who put out this survey that focused on young people and focused on both of them. We didn't just say, 
We want to talk about Americans. We are the American Jewish Committee. We are centered here. But we said in order to examine the problem holistically or to examine the issue holistically, we need to hear Israeli voices. And I think the most compelling part, and I don't remember if I put this in the op-ed, I, I don't think I did, is that this survey was created by our access leaders, our, our young Israelis and our young Americans. Like they created the questions and we worked with the appropriate channels to make it happen. They have been the best example of the lay partner relationship that you could possibly think of because they're the ones who really pushed it out the door. It was their ideas, their concerns, their questions that really generated movement. So yesterday we had a follow-up meeting with this group of people and started to parse out, okay, here's what we know, here's the diagnosis, what's the prescription? And we started to begin having these really interesting conversations about how we move this information with what we know to what we can do. And there were a number of different elements that came up, but I would say one of the most interesting elements is talking about just general perceptions of Israeli society in that most people just like don't know what Israelis are or what they do or what their concerns are and what they care about. And the reality is like most Israelis are like, hello, Tel Aviv is the most expensive city in the world. This is awful. And they're not always thinking about life in the view of the conflict all the time. They're human beings who love and laugh and fight and do all of the things that we all do, but the world has placed a very myopic lens on how we view Israeli society. So one of the things that we've been talking about in Access is like, okay, well, how do we unpack that? How do we, and by the way, um, television and movies has not done Israelis so many favors recently. I think we were talking about this yesterday, which is that there are sort of like two narratives, which is either like Haredim who are like escaping from the clutches of ultra-Orthodox society, or it's like Svengali swindler type people like in the Tinder swindler and what we saw in WeWork, um, or there's also that everybody's in the Mossad. And there are a lot of people in between those three archetypes. And it's really crucial for us to unpack what those archetypes are. So that way the general population can humanize, can empathize, can understand that Israel has so much more to it than just these like binary characters that are so ineffective at telling the full Israeli story. So there's a lot for us that we know. There's a lot we plan to do. A lot of it is obviously still in ideation mode, but at the end of the day, what we, we know what we know, and now we know we have to do something different. And we are very much in the process of, and have had the full support of AJC to explore what that process is, which is incredibly exciting. That is exciting. Uh, we just had Laura jump off because she had to go on to another call. But uh, Dana, a few more questions for you. Yeah. Um, so I think you, you hit on something really vital there, which is that there's not a lot of nuance and context in the mainstream media, whether it's movies and TV shows or the news or what have you. And so is, is part of this sort of facilitating more dialogue? Because one of the things that I loved about the survey is that you really, you know, a lot of surveys, for example, we know the Pew survey only focuses on American Jews. And there's, you know, surveys that come out of the UK and France and other places, and it's only about those local communities. And I think one of the issues is the division of not just the denominations in Judaism, but in the geographics, right? 
And so the, one of the things that I really, really uh, commend you guys for, for doing is bringing in that Israeli counterpart, and in this case, the, the US counterpart. How do we sort of, in your estimation, um, how do we continue to create that, those bridges, whether it's interpersonal, but also at scale? Are, are you guys working on some solutions that you can share with us, maybe a little bit behind the scenes? We're dreaming right now, but I would definitely say that our survey indicated that when American Jews visit Israel a minimum of two times, their sense of attachment to Israel and Israelis goes up. So, and I think, I think, I don't remember the exact detail, but if it was, especially if they had visited within the last like five or so years and it had been more than twice, like that attachment went up. So, you know, it's not a new concept that the idea of mifkashim or meeting is really important. We know it's really important. That has been a part and parcel of the Jewish education discussion for the last, you know, 30 years. And we know that that's really important. But I think one of the, there, there are opportunities and limitations for these mifkashim experiences. You know, oftentimes these happen in the context of something like summer camp, where you're in an eight-week oasis, where you have your own culture, your own norms. It's a very different experience. Those are incredibly powerful, and it's even better when they can be transferred outside of the camping experience. But there are certainly other ways to examine how meeting can be used as a tool for a dialogue and further relationship building. I think that naturally there's a lot of emphasis on bringing Americans to Israel, programs like Birthright, other opportunities, because there's a sense of wanting to connect Americans to the land and the people. But there's certainly greater opportunity to bring Israelis to America and to unpack that whole dynamic, because I really think that most Israelis would be quite surprised when they um, really see the complexity of American Jewish life and also understanding the choices that a lot of American Jews have to make to be Jewish here versus the sort of just underlying pervasive nature of Jewish experience and identity in Israel, which even if you like actively choose to be Chiloni or secular in Israel, it's still there. Like it's still a presence no matter what you do that doesn't exist here. You have to make a conscious effort to choose to be Jewish and the varying degrees unto which you do it is completely on you and your family and the community of which you choose to be a part of. So I think there's a lot to be said about creating more opportunity in which there is like a fluidity of bringing Americans and Israelis together in both spaces. I think that's very powerful. Um, you know, I think we also talk about Israel and the diaspora interchangeably in my context. We're really talking about American Jews because the reality is for a number of other diaspora communities around the world, their relationship with Israel is very different. And it would be disingenuous of us and disingenuous of me to make claims about how like French Jews feel about Israel. Um, it's much more, I, I can only speak to what the, you know, the survey indicates and what my own experience as a millennial Jewish person um, feels and, and thinks could be helpful. But you know, in terms of the behind the scenes stuff, I'll say stay tuned. We're, we're, we're doing quite a bit of dreaming at the moment. That's amazing. First of all, you made some really interesting points that I think, you know, going back to how you sort of started the podcast where you talked about how you met Israelis for the first time. And my feeling is that, you know, I had a very similar experience when I came on Birthright. 
and and sort of met Israelis for the first time, which is weird, even though I grew up in LA, which has one of the biggest Israeli yeah. populations outside okay. of Israel in the world. <laughs> but um, but I think, yeah, like, so how do we facilitate more Israeli and uh, not just uh, non-Israeli Jews, but I think people in the world in general, right? Like I, th I think, especially you hear about like these Israelis that do the army and then they go travel around the world for mm -hmm. months, if not years. And I think people... They, they meet Israelis and they're like, they're just, what? first of all, they're, they're regular people. Number one, they're not like, like you said, Mossad or super religious or whatever. And number two, they're also like really very culturally uh, rich and uh, educated and have unique ex life experiences, especially because of the army, but also, you know, growing up in this neck of the woods that makes them interesting people. That's really interesting. The second thing that's interesting is what you brought up about people that come to Israel, especially Jews, uh, two or more times have that attachment. And I think one of the things that you and I should talk about, uh, as they would call it in a sidebar, is like, how do you digitalize that experience, right? Because yeah. the, the, the fact of the matter is that people can come to Israel multiple times and will come to Israel in many cases, multiple times in their lifetime. But like, what do the in-between moments look like? Meaning if you come once every three years, so in between, you know, the first and the second time you come in that three-year period, like there has to be engagement. It's one of the reasons why I created Izzy, but um, I think there's other iterations and variations of what that sort of uh, digital and maybe virtual experience looks like. Totally. And I think also, um, you know, I'm curious, you mentioned birthright. Uh, and you, we talked about authenticity and how sort of there's just been a, there's been a huge gap in between what uh, certain Jews have been raised uh, to think about Israel and to know about Israel versus, <clears throat> excuse me, the reality sort of, of of what it is today or what it's always been and it was never you know shown. Birthright, I think you know I had Robert Aronson on on the podcast who used to be the president of the Birthright uh, Israel Foundation and he said himself you know it's a very inauthentic experience so. I guess, last question for you, like, how do we create more authentic experiences going both ways, right? Having Israelis go out to the world and bring their Israeliness with them and share it with as many people as possible. And then having people, especially from the United States, come to Israel or engage with Israel from afar in a very authentic and real way. Yeah, that's a really good question. So... 10 years ago, I wrote my master's thesis on what I refer to as the post-Mishlechad experience. So when Israelis come work at Jewish summer camp, what happens when they go home? And the answer is usually not a whole lot um, because, you know, they've had this experience and it's amazing and there's camp reunions, but like, unless they come back to camp or unless they maintain relationship with their American counterparts, like there isn't really like a system in place. Um, so I remember asking myself similar questions, which is how do we facilitate authentic experiences between Americans and Israelis? Um, and I think, you know, what I remember from my research is that there was this anecdote about how when there was a child at summer camp, um, you know, his connection to Israel was because of his counselor, Yoni, right? Yoni was this cool, amazing, charismatic, awesome guy who was able to like infuse Israel education in a way that was like totally natural and normal. And for this camper, Yoni was Israel. And I think that's kind of what needs to happen is that like 
I'm not suggesting that all Israelis like have the burden of, you know, embodying the modern state and all of its accompanying challenges. However, I do think that the way to experience Israel is through the people and Birthright is an amazing program. It has transformed so many people's lives, both Israeli and American. So I in no way am, am diminishing that value. But it does sort of hit all of like the greatest hits of Israel. It's like, you're going to Masada, you're going to the Kotel, you're going to the Dead Sea. Like there's only so much that you can do in 10 days. And a lot of what makes Birthright so impactful is all of the side conversations that are happening on the bus when you're out in the shook or when you're doing whatever. It's those little little moments that are authentic and organic. But I think something that can be really powerful is like, I know it's not as glam as, you know, going out in Tel Aviv, but like, what does it look like when you go stay with Israelis at their Moshav? Like, what does it look like when you experience Israeli life in a way that is how Israelis experience it? Whether that means like going to school with them, whether it means chilling on their Moshav, whether it means going to concerts with them, going to like Midburn or some of these other experiences. And I would say vice versa. But I also would say generally that there aren't so many American opportunities that uh, parallel of the birthright experience for Israelis in America. Um, there have certainly been attempts by a number of people in the Jewish community to mirror that, but I don't think I've seen anything that has had any like sustainable legs. But I think that utilizing this framework of like Yoni is Israel is a really powerful frame in that for me, like my Israeli friends were Israel. That was, that is how I will always define my experience every time I'm there and I'm there all the time is that I feel a sense of closeness and connectedness and enchantment and frustration all because of the experiences that I have through living with and through my friends. And my friends from camp who I met in 2005 are still my best friends to this very day. When I go in a week for an Access Israel mission to Morocco and Israel, where we're going to be building on the on the Abraham Accords, which is incredibly exciting. We're bringing Americans and Israelis and Moroccans together to both countries. It's going to be fantastic. We're having a briefing with one of my very close friends from camp, who was like a goofy 20-year-old in 2007, and now is the director of the Middle East, North Africa, and India desk for the Foreign Trade Association. So, you know, for me, it's about utilizing the people as the lens and the experience. And I think that when there is too much of a focus on the land, when there's too much of a focus on what's in it and not who is in it, that detracts from the experience. And we know that interpersonal relationships are the core to anything. Changing hearts and minds begins with conversation and dialogue and knowing people. And unless we utilize that framework, it's just not going to be successful. So everything that I'm hoping to do vis-a-vis, you know, advocacy, policy, anything having to do with the U.S.-Israel relationship will always put people at the center, which is how I started this conversation. It's very full circle. So beautiful. Well, that was a really a great, great place to leave off. Thank you so much. Thank Dana, you, for your Josh. Time. This was I, awesome. Yeah, this was very fun. I-